0: We only got two more weeks in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah 11 and 12. We're going to cover two chapters right now. So as Tyler Dell comes up to to read for us, uh,
1: please stand as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. I am not going to be reading two full chapters today. Um, We're actually going to be in Nehemiah 12 verses 27 through 43. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephthophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmabeth. And from the region, and, and for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates in the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, and Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Metan- Metaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Shemaiah Ezrael, Malalai, Gilalai, Maya, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed with them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yashinah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Meassiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eleoniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Meassiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, and Johananen, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezeriah as their leader." And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Mm. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Father, let's come to you in prayer. Lord, this is the day you have made. Lord, we rejoice and are glad in it because we know you are on the throne ordaining all events around the world. And in particular, around our country this coming Tuesday. Big elections coming up. Many people are nervous. But Lord, I pray that those that we, we would stand on the rock that is Christ Jesus. And we know that you are the one who, who puts leaders in their positions, kings, presidents, senators, House of Representatives. You, you, you put the people in their place. And so Lord, our trust is ultimately in you. But let us exercise our uh, ability to go and express our voice. We live in the greatest country the world has ever seen. And so Lord, may we not take that for granted, but may we be thankful that we do and exercise our rights. But again, the outcome is from the Lord. And that is where our hope and trust is. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, orchestrating this whole world for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys, go ahead and have a seat. As I said, we are in the only two weeks left of Nehemiah. And I'm thankful for all the comments that we've had, encouragement we've had. It's been a great book. And we start out, it's been one of my favorite books because as a young man, this is one of the first books I went through <clears throat> And I learned so much about God and Jesus and the Bible and leadership. And just going through it again has just reinvigorated me in how much I love this book. And as we started this book a, a, a couple months ago, I asked you to think on a couple questions as we are going through this book that came from Nehemiah chapter one. The questions that Nehemiah probably asked himself. And that, those two questions were this. How are the people of God doing? He asked how the uh, the people of God were doing in Jerusalem because he was in Susa, thousands of miles away. And he asked his brother, how are the people of God doing in Jerusalem? And we asked the same question. How are the people of God doing here in Fort Collins, Colorado? How are the people of God doing here at the Crossing Church as we look out through the landscape of what has taken place this year and where we find ourselves today? So that's the first question. How are the people of God doing? And the second question is, might there not be a mission that the Lord might give you to help rebuild or strengthen his people, his kingdom, this church. And so we, uh, hopefully you guys have been thinking through that the last couple of months. Uh, Rita and I have definitely been thinking about it and asking that question. let start beginning to stir some stuff in our hearts and in our souls. Um, we, we dropped our, our youngest daughter, Taylor, off uh, at, at college in Jacksonville. We were driving back and it was just me and her. And like it hit us, it's like we are empty nesters right now. Our oldest daughter's twenty-five. Madison was eighteen, so we spent these twenty-five years. And now we are empty nesters. Well, at least in theory, we're empty nesters right now because we still have a couple handfuls still living with us, uh, and our little grandbaby uh, Evangelique, and she can stay as long as she wants. You know, I don't know about JT and Brooke, but she can stay. We'll kick them out, but. But it's caused us to, to think and to look at the new rhythms. And we're, and we're asking the question, how can, how can we leverage our, our schedule that has opened up that we, we, we had so much time in with our kids and serving and loving and growing and directing and, and guiding them? Now our, our schedule is freed up. What are we going to do with that time? How can we, uh, again, survey the land of how the, the church is doing, the people of God are doing, and what can we step into? What new mission has God given us? And we see that um, Nehemiah asked that question, and we come to chapter 12. And then we see this is the climax of Nehemiah. The, 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 the mission that was given Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 seemed like mission impossible. And by the time we get to chapter 12, it's mission accomplished. He has accomplished what the Lord has set in his heart. The hand of the Lord has been on Nehemiah, and he's been able to rebuild the city walls and to start rebuilding the people of God. He rebuilt the wall in 52 days. He spent more time praying on what to do than actually accomplishing what the Lord put in his mind. 52 days he rebuilt the wall. But more importantly, he has been rebuilding through the prophet and the priest Ezra, the people of God. That's what's most important. Building the wall is easy. Rebuilding the people of God is hard. They were in a desperate desperate spot. The walls were broken down. They had no home. The city of God, Jerusalem, was in barrens and was in shame at that point, and he came in and rebuilt the wall, but then he also built the people through the scriptures, through confession and repentance, and through the people renewing their covenant with God to live and to be faithful, to obey the words of the Lord. That's what we're going to see in Nehemiah 12. There's a couple things that are still left to do. One, he needs to repopulate Jerusalem, the city of God. And two, they need to rejoice and celebrate on what God has accomplished these last couple months. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah 11 and 12. And there's good news for us since the Lord is not done building back then. He's still building the people of God. He's still building you and me and using us to further his kingdom. And since the Lord is always building the people of God, let us continue to worship him him through our work as we live as missionaries, as we live on mission for God and to rejoice with thanksgiving to the one who is worthy and who is accomplishing much in our presence. Amen. So Nehemiah, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going to sum up Nehemiah chapter 11 as this. Number one, since the Lord is always building, let us seek to be available for use. Since the Lord is always building, let us seek to be available for use. You see, the wall and the people, again, have been rebuilt. They've been restored. Jerusalem. And now it's time to repopulate Jerusalem. You remember back in our study in Nehemiah chapter 7, the walls were built and then Nehemiah looked out and said this, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Again, the city, the walls were rebuilt, but there was no one living in the cities. Jerusalem was a ghost town. And this was not good because this was the city of God. This is where the presence of God was to dwell with the people of God so they could be a witness to the world. And yet, when people looked at Jerusalem, they thought, man, your God must not be good. Look at it, it's desolate. There's nothing there. There's nothing but despair there. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. So Nehemiah, again, part of his vision was to repopulate Jerusalem and bring the people of God back to the city of God so they could be the witnesses for God. And we see the ones only living in the city right now were just a few leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah, that's Ezra, that's some of the priests and the Levites. Now quickly I want to give a leadership principle here for those of us, that, which is all of us, who are in leadership. We are all leading somebody. And here we don't have the main point of chapter 11, but a significant point. And this is the point, that the leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra, are about to ask the people to move into the city. They're about to ask some certain people to change their life, their quality of life upside down, to come and move back into Jerusalem, to make a major sacrifice to make a major sacrifice, again, to uproot their family to where they're living now, to move into Jerusalem, to, to change jobs, to change their circles of influence where they live, work, and play, to, to leave immediate family, to move from the plains where there's a better quality of life back into the city. Nehemiah and Ezra are about to ask some people to do that. And here's the principle, that Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead by example because they are the ones now living in the city. You think about Nehemiah where he was living before he came to Jerusalem, these desolate this desolate city. He was living in the the choicest place, the best palace, eating the best food with the best entertainment with the king in Susa. And he left that to come to Jerusalem. So the leadership principle is this, is that they have done exactly with their own lives what they're asking others to do. So if you want to be a good leader, a good leader leads by example. There's a lot of leaders out there that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. There's a lot of leaders out there saying, do as I say, not as I do. And I don't know about you, but when I look at those kind of leaders, I don't respect them and I ain't going to follow them. I'll follow the men and the women who lead by example, who, who go ahead first. Leaders lead by example. They put themselves in their people's shoes and show them the way they are the first over the wall. That's who we want to lead. And so as you lead your family as you lead your businesses, as you lead maybe in the classroom, as you lead your friendship group, be men and be women who lead by example, who go first and foremost. Nehemiah and Ezra are a picture of that. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus stepping out of heaven, becoming a man and showing us the way on how to live for the glory of God and for joy. So leaders lead by example. Now to the to the main point of chapter 11. Look at verse 1 again. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so how are they going to go about repopulating Jerusalem? We see here they're going to choose one family out of ten to come and move into the city. So all the families of Israel, some almost 50,000, as we read about in chapter 8, some 50,000 people are all available. They're all on the table. But yet only 10% of that, one out of 10, is going to move back into the city where the others will still be living their lives and serving the Lord from outside the city. And so how do they do that? They do this thing called cast lots. It says, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring, again, one out of 10, 10% into the city. What is cast lots? Well, it's kind of like sanctified dice rolling is what it kind of is, you know? That's kind of what they did. That's kind of, they, they chose to come in. They, 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 they rolled some kind of dice, kind of not like the dice we roll, but something similar to them. Now at first you might think like, man, that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? If I'm going to move my family from a, a quality of living, secure place back into the city where it might not be as, you know, um, cake and eating your cake and the ice cream as well on top of it uh, that just, just screw it. Eating your cake and ice cream, both. <laughs> scrap that. All right. <laughs> a place of blessing to a place maybe of, of difficulty, we'll put it that way then I'm not going to leave it up to to some kind of dice throwing, are you? That doesn't sound very spiritual. I don't want to leave it up to chance. And and you and I would be right if our our assumption, if it wasn't for Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, the people of God believe that they can understand the will of God through this event called casting lots. Because they believed that whatever, whatever was cast and whatever the dice ended up being, it was determined by God Himself. He was the one that controlled the outcome. This was His will. And we see this throughout the Bible. Some 60 times this, this idea of casting lots is used. Now what does that look like? Do you, do you remember, do you remember in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace? The second worst Star Wars movie ever made? Do you guys remember that one? You had little, little Anakin, you had the pod races, and you probably had the best uh, lightsaber battle with Darth Maul, Qui-Gon, and uh, Obi-Wan. But outside that, it was a horrendous movie. Can I get an amen from the Star Wars uh, people in here? Yeah. The, first, the, the worst movie was episode two, but then I asked Alex. Alex, raise your hand. Where's Alex in here? There's Alex. Alex is our movie critic. I said, Alex, what is the worst Star Wars movie? And he said, Star Wars Hollywood uh, celebration. I'm like, amen. That was right. All right, bingo. All right. But anyways, apart from that, you guys remember that movie. Uh, Qui-Gon, uh, Anakin's a slave, and he goes to Watto, and he says, I want Anakin. So they throw the chance dice. Watto says, okay, well, let's throw the chance dice. And so they throw the dice. And what happens? At first, it seems like chance to Watto, but Qui-Gon what? He controls the dice to make it come up red. So he gets Anakin. This is like God is in the one who's in control of the outcome of the dice. Again, sanctified dice rolling. There was an early time in the crossing where Gary and I, he was a pastor here early on with me, where we had to make a, a major decision at the crossing. And we had these two, two um, ways that we could go. We were like, man, we were praying, we were praying, we were seeking the Lord, we were fasting, but we we had these two answers, but we didn't know which one to check take. Which one to go? So we thought, well, we don't have dice here, but we had those little matchbox, you know, with matches in it. You guys know what I'm talking about? It kind of was like one of these little sizes like this. I couldn't find it anymore. So we said, let's flip the matchbox to see what the Lord says, right? And if it lands on this side, then we'll go this direction. If it lands on this side, we'll go that direction. And we said, all right. So I flipped it up in the air and it's going, it's flipping. And you know how it landed? It landed like this. (laughs) I kid you not. We went, whoa, you know, we were like, that's amazing. I could do that a thousand times and there's no way it's going to land with the skinny side up. So you know what we did? We kept praying, amen, because <laughs> that wasn't the answer. But that's kind of it is. it is. This is what we see in Nehemiah 11. The, the, the dice was rolled and we see in Nehemiah 11, 3 through 24, we have the names of those who moved into the city. Again, all were available. They landed on this 10% and they said, we will obey. We will accept God's will and we will move our families into the city. And we see three groups. We see a tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Levi. We see that there's there's leaders, there's chiefs, there's leaders, verse 3. There's priests, verse 10. There's Levites, verse 15. There's gatekeepers, verse 19. And then there's overseers, verse 22. And again, we have these men and these families that were available, and they made the sacrifice to do their part to build the kingdom of God, to repopulate Jerusalem. And here's the question for you and me this morning. Here's the connection for you and me this morning. Are you available? Are you and your family available to be used by God to build the kingdom in the way he might call you to? What might he ask of you? What sacrifice might he ask of you to build his kingdom, to move it forward? There might be 10% 10 of here where he's calling us to uproot. He's calling us literally to take our lives or our families and move cities, maybe move states, maybe move countries to serve at other churches or church plants or mission organization. Maybe maybe he's calling you to do that, you and your family, 10% of you. But probably 90% of you, he's calling you to be more available to serve and make sacrifices here at the crossing, where you live, work, and play, to use your time, your talents, and your treasure to build his kingdom here. And so ask yourself the question, are you available to be used by God if he calls you? And of course, we don't have to throw lots. We just pray and ask. And he he gives us mission through the impromptu of the Holy Spirit and through one another. And really what this is, is this is just the practical application of Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is just a practical application of being a living sacrifice. As we look at our lives, as we look at the kingdom, we're like, Lord, here am I, send me as Isaiah said. That, that, that we look first and foremost to the lens of the kingdom of God and what needs to be done to motivate us on how to live our life. And notice something real quick. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. It's not just the leaders when you look at this list of, of leaders, you see chiefs and leaders and priests and Levites and, and overseers. You see all these leadership, but you see this group called the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers in verse 19, they seem out of place. Why gatekeepers amongst these leaders? Because every job, everything that needs to be done in the kingdom matters. Whether you're the the first and you're leading and you're up on the stage or whether you're serving behind the scenes. The gatekeepers, you know what their job was? They had a lot of little jobs here and there, but their main job was to be a a greeter almost. It was to open the doors of the temple and then to close them. That was their job. A small job, but a great job. That Lord looked on it. Look, everyone has a task in building the kingdom of God. The question is, are you available to submit to the Lord if he calls you to that task. So that's, that's a chapter 11, repopulating Jerusalem. Then we come to the second point. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Since the Lord is always building, let us worship and rejoice with thanksgiving to what he has accomplished both corporately and individually. Again, we're going to highlight really verses 22 through 47 here, and we're going to see kind of three steps in which we are worshiped to rejoice and give thanksgiving. But we still have this 1 through 26, again, this list of names again. Again, another list of names, and these names are important. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, they're important because they're in the Bible. They're important because most genealogies or lists point us to Jesus. But they're important because they're normal people like you and me. People who God uses to build his kingdom. And we see in verse 1 who these are. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. So we start with Zerubbabel. And then we look at verse 26. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Joadaz, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of Ezra, the priests and the scribes. And so what we see between verses 1 and 26 are the the first wave of exiles that came out of Babylon with Zerubbabel to the third wave or the last wave of exiles that came out of Babylon with Nehemiah. Then all these individuals in between. Now, it's not exhaustive, but it's a list of priests, Levites, and those who came with, again, Zerubbabel through Nehemiah. And see, here's the point. Here's the point of these names. The point of these names is that even though we give Nehemiah and Ezra credit for for the mission accomplished in Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the the people of God, it, it really started decades before. Some even say a century before is when Zerubbabel came and started this journey. This journey begun with the rebuilding process on the shoulders of Zerubbabel as he led the first exiles out of Babylon. Now many of us don't know really much about Zerubbabel, but I bet you know one of the Old Testament verses that was given to Zerubbabel. It's one of the most known Old Testament verses that we all probably know if we've been in good churches such as the crossing that teach the Bible. Again, Zerubbabel was the first leader of the exiles and he was commanded with rebuilding the temple that, that King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. He was called with the exiles to rebuild the temple and that's what he did. He, but, but the Lord said, but you're going to have opposition. You're going to have enemies. You're going to have people that are not going to let you build the temple. You're going to have to overcome them. And the scripture verse that was given to Zechariah in this prophecy was in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. And he said, the Lord said to Zechariah, this is how you're going to overcome them. And I want you to finish it for me. Not by might, not by power, but what? But by my spirit. That was the verse that was given to Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And guess what? It's the same today with us. We are called to continue to build the kingdom of God. It's our turn. Uh, back in Zerubbabel's day, when they were bringing the exiles in Nehemiah's day, that was the time of re- in the redemption where they were called to do uh, the mission and given the mission that God gave them to rebuild. We are still doing that mission today. We are still building the temple of God, both individually and corporately. It's our turn to keep it going. We are built and standing on these men and these women who have come before us. This list is whose shoulders that we are standing on. And we are called to keep it going. And how are we going to keep it going? Well, it's not going to be by our might. It's not gonna be by our power, but it's gonna be, be be led by what? The Holy and who? The Holy Spirit. Not what? The who? The Holy Spirit. We're not doing anything new here, but the same thing that faithful men and women before us, whose shoulders that we are standing on. We're standing on Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus is the Christ. And upon that confession that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, that his church is going to be built up and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's whose shoulders we're standing on, Peter's as well. And so this list is important because this list tells us on whose shoulders that we are standing on. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We talked about the book of life, that our name is not written in the Bible, but it's written in in another book. It's called the book of life. And we're standing on their shoulders, but depending on when the Lord comes back, there are going to be others who stand on our shoulders. And the question is, are your shoulders going to be broad enough and stand on the the hope of the gospel where people are going to stand on your shoulders to give God His glory? Again, so we see that this list is important, because these are the shoulders that we are standing on. So that's verses 1 through 26. Now for the meat of the of the message. What we see in verses 12, 22 through 47. And what we see is that the people, again, finished the work of the rebuilding of the wall. Now they're rebuilding the people of God, and it's time to worship. It's time to rejoice. It's time to celebrate in what the Lord has done through them. In other words, in all of our lives, whether we're in Nehemiah's day or in our day, in all of our lives, there is a time to work for the Lord. There's a time to put our nose to the ground and work for the Lord. And then there's times to worship the Lord. There's times to worship the Lord. There's time to stop, pick our heads up, and see what the Lord has done through us. One of the joys of my position, one of my things I get to do is I get to, to assess and coach church planners over this country. And I'm currently coaching a church planner in Burgall, North Carolina. Right? That, that metropolis of Burgall, North Carolina. Everyone know where that is? No, none of us know where that is. I didn't even know what it was. But the people, there's got people there. So, so God has a heart for Burgall, North Carolina. And we just celebrated one year of him planting this church. And planting a church is hard. I've done it four times. Planting a church is hard. And that first year is an absolute grind. We just celebrated one year. And we got to say, hey, Jason, you've been grinding. You've been working for the Lord. That's part of worship. But now let's just celebrate what the Lord has done. Let's, let's pause. Let's get our head up. And let's look what the Lord has done over the last year. And it was just encouraging to see how the Lord has brought people and the influence that they had in Burgol for the For the gospel. For the gospel. There's a time to work, and then there's a time to worship. Look at verse 27. We see this dedication. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they stood, uh, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the dedication with gladness and a thanksgiving and with singing and with cymbals and harps and lyres. In verse 35, you have trumpets. In verse 36, you have these other musical instruments of David. And then we see in verse 8, and the sons of the singers, this is the worship team, gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What you see here is an absolute, massive celebration, party, dedication to the Lord. People are filled with joy. They're filled with thanksgiving on what the Lord has done. And they can do nothing but sing. Bring the musicians. Bring the instruments. And let's start rejoicing and singing to the Lord and what He has done. Martin Luther said this about rejoicing and singing. He said, next to the preaching of the Word of God, music and singing demands the highest praise. Demands the highest praise. Next to the Word of God, next to the Gospel. Once we get that into our soul, one of the, the next thing demands our highest praise is that we get it out verbally. Now we sing to the Lord that the gospel so moves our heart. As Jack was saying, that we can do nothing but but sing and cry out to the Lord with thankfulness and praise. As we look through verses 23 through 47, we see the word singer or singers mentioned eight times. and The people that are doing that eight times. Thanksgiving six times. Rejoicing seven times. Musical instruments three times. All kinds of musical instruments. String instruments, horn instruments, all kinds of instruments. But you know what the greatest instrument is? We all have the greatest instrument. The greatest instrument is the human voice. The best way to praise the Lord is with our own voices, with your own voices. Who cares? I I can't play an instrument to save the life of me, but I can sing to the Lord. And if the Lord has, has saved you, if you are a Christian, if he's done the work in you, you have the greatest instrument in the world to praise him. And that's your voice. So this is a celebration to the Lord. And we see that comes in three three steps to it. First, we see the purification of verses 27 through 30. Look at verses 27 through 30. Again, Nehemiah and Ezra invite all the people. And in particular, they invite the singers and the musicians and the the worship team. And we see in verse 46 that that there's some some lead musicians, the chief musicians, the directors. That would be like our Cole and our Jack that kind of get up here and lead us. They had those guys there. And and again, 28, the sons of the singers gather together because this is what Nehemiah understands. When When you need someone to build the wall you get Nehemiah. That's his gift. That's what he can be. How he's been used by God to—he's the GC. He's the general contractor to to make sure everything gets built. When you want to build the people spiritually, we saw that you what—you bring the Bible guy. You bring Ezra, the priest. Well, when you want to celebrate and sing, you bring the Levites and the singers. You bring them in, and they sing. What we see here is this again. The. The praise and worship of God's people is not not boiled down to a single individual, but a group of individuals, men, women, and children, using their gifts to propel the people of God in the worship of God for the glory of God. Before they could do the celebration and dedication, they had to purify themselves. Look at verse 30. It said, "...and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls." Now, we're not taught exactly what this purification process looked like, but we understood and we know from Exodus and our study in Exodus that if we want to approach the God back in the Old Covenant, He was in the Holy of Holies. And actually, there's only one person once a year that could go in. And that was the high priest. It was, it was much a stay away because God is holy and we are sinful and we can't approach the, the Lord. So in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they had to do something like in Exodus 19 when they were about to go into the presence of the Lord. They had to do these ceremonial washings. They had to wash their bodies. They had to wash their clothes. They had to wash all the little instruments and trinkets around there. Um, And then they also had to abstain from intercourse with their spouse to go into the presence of the Lord. They had to do this either daily or, or, or yearly when they wanted to worship God. Now that was then. I was living under the old covenant. This is now. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. And so we have great news this morning that we don't have to do these ceremonial washings or cleansings. We don't have to abstain stained intercourse with our spouses. We can go into the presence of Lord, not, again, because we are pure and holy on our own efforts and work, but because of what Christ has done for us. You see, to enter the presence of God, we still have to be pure, we still have to be holy. Nothing impure can enter the presence of God. It will be seared immediately. And that happens. We can enter the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done. It's a one time event when we hear the good news of the gospel, that apart from Christ, that we are sinners, we are rebelling against King Jesus and the Lord God. We are enemies of God. We want nothing to do with him. We want to go our own way, be our own people. When we recognize that and we repent of that sin, then we turn and embrace the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you and me, that he was our substitute, that he lived the perfect life in your place and my place. He made the penalty and died on the cross for your sin and my sin. Then he was buried and he rises again three days later. When you believe that, when you repent of your sin and you embrace Christ. Guess what? There is something that happens to you, not only physically, but more importantly, internally, spiritually. You're pure. You go from a hot mess to pure. You go from a dead man, a dead woman, to a man and a woman who's alive. First John 1 John 1.7 says this, It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses, that purifies us from our sin. He is the great high priest. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin. And when He does that, He looks upon you now and doesn't see a sinner, but sees a saint. He sees you as pure, as holy, as purified. Listen, God doesn't purify us because we are worthy. Apart from Him, we are not worthy. But By Him purifying us, by Him purifying us, He makes us worthy. And now that we are worthy because of the blood of Christ, we can enter in the presence of God with confidence, with joy. We can enter the throne room of grace with joy and confidence because we are now worthy to be in His presence because of what we and how we stand in Christ Jesus. So that is the first thing. We're purified. Second, we see the procession, verses 31 through 43. Remember back in Nehemiah chapter 4 when Tobiah said as they're building the wall, uh, Tobiah was an enemy of the people of Israel, they're building the wall, and he sees, he sees him building, he goes, man, even if a fox gets on that wall, that thing will just crumble, right? You remember that? Well, listen, God will not be mocked by Tobiah then, and he won't be by, mocked by the Tobiahs of today. Look at Verse 31 of chapter 12. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to give thanks. This is an incredible scene. The walls have been built, and all of a sudden, Nehemiah and Ezra are bringing together the people of God and two great choirs. Now, these are hundreds, if not thousands of men, women, and children that come together. The first group is led by led by Ezra in verses 30 through 7. We have a picture of the uh, temple, so I'm going to kind of give you the what it looks like. If we can get that up there, Landon. There's two groups. One is being led by Ezra in verses 30 through 37. And he, he takes this group from the south, starting at the Dungate, which is down here. Dungate, and that's exactly what it is. It's a Dungate. Not a good place you want to start. You want to get out of there as soon as you can. And he takes them this way. This is the way Ezra's going. And then there's another group, Nehemiah, and he starts about right in here, and he takes them this way. And so you have these two, two great groups, these two great choirs that are, are singing and playing musical instruments, and they're going back and forth to one another, and they're going to meet up here at the temple. And this is what's taking place. This is an incredible, an incredible scene. Last night, I don't know if you guys watched it, but who watched the World Series last night? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right, some of us didn't hear. Good. I, I definitely watched it. Yeah. All right. Houston Astros won. Great. Whatever. I could care less. I'm a Pirates fan. I haven't seen a World Series since 78. So anyways, not bitter or anything. But so it was a great game. But you had, whatever, 50,000 people in that stands on that last out that were just rejoicing that their team has just won the World Series. It's an incredible. It would have been so cool to be there. But that's just a temporal joy. Those people are waking up this morning and being like, okay, that was it. Let's go on to our next day. These guys in Nehemiah's day... And what we get to celebrate is not a temporal joy, it's an eternal joy. It's a joy that lasts for our lifetime and then into eternity. And we'll be singing and praising the King of kings and the Lord of lords for what he has done for us. He didn't win a baseball game. He didn't just build a wall. We celebrate because of what King Jesus has done. Look at verse 30, 43, it kind of sums it up. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women, the children also rejoiced. What's the main thought of that sentence? It's joy, it's rejoicing in what the Lord has done. Everyone's rejoicing, men, women, children. Everyone's rejoicing know what God has done through them. And that's the question for us this morning. Has God done such a work in you that produces a response like this? Has God done a work in you that re, that demands a response like this? Rejoicing in thanksgiving. I would submit to you that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian again, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him, He's done a greater work in you than He did in the days in the people of Nehemiah. Because we have the full counsel of God. We understand exactly. They were looking forward to Jesus. We look back. We know exactly who Jesus is. We know exactly who the Messiah is. We know exactly that. It's not our work or effort that gets us, but it's the grace of God and the mercy of God. And when you when you start to live and, and soak and meditate and see your life through the gospel, it can do nothing but cause you to sing with joy, to live a life of thankfulness, I love what one said, praise and rejoicing is the indicator of our spiritual vitality, both as an individual and as a corporate, corporately. Praise and rejoicing is an indicator, is a barometer of your spiritual and my spiritual vitality. And really, it's, it's the will of God. There's many things that are, we ask, what's the will of God for my life? Well, one of the things of the will of God is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you and for me. So are you searching for the will of God? The will of God is look and meditate on the gospel and then rejoice with thanksgiving and praise. You see, why did the people of Nehemiah 12 sing and rejoice to the Lord? Because they built a wall. Why do we get to sing and rejoice? Because we have the full gospel. We look to Jesus. So we sing and rejoice. I love what James Boyce says. James Boyce says this. He says, singing has always been a striking feature of worship of God's Old Testament, New Testament people. This is not true of other religions. Many use repetit- uh, rep- repetitive chants. In some cases, just the clergy sing. Man-made religion is grim it is only in biblical religion that the people of God are characteristically joyful in expressing their joy with great singing. Why? Because we have the gospel. We have Jesus. I mean, start to think about it. When you think about all the world religions out there and Hinduism and Muslim faith and and, um, Buddhism and and all those things, you think like, man, you don't see people singing with joy and praise. You see the kind of the gloom and dim and everything's kind of hush-hush, but not in Christianity. When you look from Genesis to Revelation, you see a people that are praising and singing and celebrating for what the Lord has done in their life, both individually and corporately. And again, what fuels our singing? What fuels your rejoicing, my rejoicing? What fuels your thanksgiving? Is Jesus and the gospel and what he has done in your life and my life? What fuels our praise is grace, not law. What, What fuels our praise is that our shame has been what? Turned to glory. We sang about it earlier. That's what fuels our praise. What fuels our praise is we know now that we're not a sinner anymore in the eyes of the Lord. We're a saint. In fact, not even a saint. We're even more intimate than a saint. We are the children of God. And we have instant access to the Father. When you see your life through the lens of the gospel, it produces a lot of things, but one of the things that should produce at the top of that list is praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what book of the Bible, outside the book of Psalms, that has the most songs in it? If I ask you, what, what book of the Bible outside of Psalms, has the most songs in it, the most singing in it, the most rejoicing in it. Do you know what book that is? I didn't even know that till this week. It's the book of Revelation. Think about that. When we we probably think of the book of Revelation, we think doom and gloom, right? Now, to some group of people that have rejected Christ, you're going to get judgment. And it's going to be a bad day for you. But for those Christians... The reason why there's so many songs is because they are rejoicing. Why? Because the realities of the gospel are coming into full fruition. They are now experiencing what we call the already, not yet. They are experiencing the things in the future. They are experiencing them now. They they are now in a a, a place in heaven where there is no sin. There is no death. There is no suffering. And who's there is their savior, their Messiah, that we can see him face to face and that causes us to rejoice. It's the book of Revelation. Revelation. It's an incredible thing. So singing, rejoicing, praising, thanksgiving, again, is a barometer, is an indicator of our spiritual vitality. Look at the end of verse 43. Look at the end of verse 43. It says this. Not only is our life, again, that's our, our action. When we do that, there's a secondary thing that's happening. It's that those that don't know Jesus are watching you and are listening to you. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Was heard far away. There was another game on last night. LSU beat Alabama. It was just a great sports night last night if you were there. And um, LSU has like, I don't know, 100,000 fans. They win the game in overtime. They go for a two-point conversion, beat Alabama. Phenomenal. The place erupts. You can imagine that when that stadium, 90,000 people erupted, that the whole state of Louisiana heard that, that cry, right? Their praise. How much more should, when we sing and hear, even though it's Captain, that, that our voice, what it would be to be magic that our voice that people see, hear us, they, they are affected? In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas are in prison. They're in prison. And it says that they are praying and they are singing. And then you know what it says in verse 25? And the other prisoners were what? Listening to them. What compels men in prison to sing? The gospel does. And guess what? That impacts everyone else around them. So look at your life this morning. People are watching you. People are listening to you. Where you live, work and play. Do they see a people that is filled with joy, rejoicing? Do they see a thankful people? What what song are they hearing from you and your life? Because it has an impact. And as Christians, again, one who've been saved by the gospel, everyone around us should feel the reverberations of our praise to the Lord, our thanksgiving. What are they hearing in your life? What are they hearing? So when we sing this last song, when we come together and we sing here corporately, that may we, may we sing with passion, rejoice with emotion. And not only here, but when we go out there in our everyday lives. This, should get, this is God's will for you to rejoice continuously and give thanks in all times. Well, third and finally, quickly, verses 44 through 47, we see provisions. We have purification, we have procession, and now we have provision, verse 44. On that day, on what day? The dedication day. There's a lot going on here. There's another way to worship. Not only by singing <clears throat> and praising the Lord, but on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms and the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into the portions required uh, by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Then we see in verses 46 and 47, we get this description of what the people gave was to support those who were serving and leading them in worship, in the things of the Lord, the temple worship. And again, what we see here as we go back to Nehemiah 10, we actually see that the faithful commitments that they said verbally are now being lived out in action. They are doing what they said they would do to fulfill the old covenant back in Nehemiah 10, 32 through 39, that they were giving to the house of the Lord and not neglecting it. They were not neglecting it. Because you see, worship is not only singing, but it's also about giving. It's both and. It's singing, it's giving thanks, and it's also giving of our time, talents, and treasures. Now, as we step back, we know that, hey, singing can kind of be kind of easy. That's not really hard. Everyone wants to go to a celebration. Everyone wants to go to a party. Everyone wants to go to a concert and sing. That's not really hard. That doesn't really take, there's not a lot of skin in the game, but giving, that's a whole, that's a whole nother ball game, isn't it? And we touched on this back in Nehemiah 10 and what that looks like. But we know that giving's a little bit harder for all of us, for me and for you. Why? Because we put our identity, we put our, our, our security in our resources, in our money. Uh, our security, our comfort, our pleasures. And we looked to that, and it's, tough to, it's tough to give up some of that stuff, right? Because we're like, oh no, well, I need this money to, to, to live on. But Nehemiah and the people of God, and again, when, when the gospel hits you, it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength, not our pocketbook. And so we know that. We talked about that in Nehemiah 10. So let me just Give you a couple ways in which you and I can think through giving, even that much more, because this is a big part of the Christian life, is to give. Again, giving is not a, a bill. A giving is an act of worship, just like singing and giving thanks. It's it's what we do with our resources. And there's two ways. There's two R's, let me give you. One is rational, and these are both good. Because the, the, the individual you are giving, these are both good. One is rational. We have a bunch of rational people in here, which is good. And they give according to numbers. They give, okay, hey, this is how much I make. This is how much I spend. This is how much I can give. And so I'm going to give according to my ration and what I feel is reasonable to the Lord. That gives joy to me as we look back in Corinthians a couple weeks ago. This gives me joy that I give, you know, this week I give $360.47 to the Lord. Amen. And then next week I'm going to give $323.23 to the Lord. We got people that give like that. And yes and amen if that's the way you give. That's one way you can give. You can give rationally. You can think through that. Another way to give is relationally, is relationally. In other words, I give to my kids differently than I give to a stranger, right? Because of my proximity to them, because of my relationship with them. I give differently. My relationship determines on how I give or what I give to them. My my family, my kids will get way more than a stranger. Again, because of our proximity, I guess you could say that relationally, the, what, what drives us is love. Love is what drives relationships, and love is what dictates on what I give. And again, this is just a good idea, as it points us to Christ. That again, leader by example, God first gave His best, His Son Jesus, for us so that we could enter into His presence. And because Jesus so much loved us, He went to the cross. For the joy set before Him, He went to the cross because of his love for us and how much that's a that's a way that we can give we can give through our relationship and what christ has done for us and what we see christ has done for us and what he's given us we understand we're just stewards of what he's given us it's not our own it's a good gift that comes from God and now we can give it away and again if you give rationally awesome amen if you give relationally awesome amen the point of nehemiah and the point of rest of scripture is are you giving to the lord's work are you giving to the Lord's work? Now with this, I want to end with this last, last point. And this will be quick. <clears throat> I want you to look at again at the end of verse 44. And it said, For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Now so this is a tough topic to talk about. But I want to end with this. I hope that you're rejoicing. I hope that your thankfulness, I hope your joy is for the men and the women who lead you here at the crossing. That's what this text is saying. That for Judah, they looked at the, the priests, the Levites, those that were leading them in the Word, that were leading them in singing, leading them in the, the ceremonial things, that, I, that they rejoiced over them. They, they gladly gave and support the mission of God. I hope, I hope for, that. that's the way you, you see the people ministering on your behalf here at the crossing. I hope you look at Daniel and Rich and Joey and say, those are good men who lead this church. They first and foremost, they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they want to lead you in that way as well. Not perfectly, of course, because none of us are perfectly, but we follow the one who is perfect. Cole and Jack. These are two men that lead us in in worship every Sunday. I, I hope you guys are thankful for them. Uh, Because they're not getting paid full time to do that. They have jobs that are work. They work 50, 50, 60 hours a week, high stress jobs. And yet they come every Sunday to lead us in worship. I hope you are thankful for them. I hope you rejoice over them. For our deacons, Tyler, Albert, and Joel McKenzie, who lead our children's ministry, and Nicole before that. Lord, I, I hope you guys are thankful for them. I hope you remember them in your prayers and rejoice over them, that you have faithful men and women that are serving you to serve the Lord. I hope you're thankful for even our church plan in Turkbeck, right? And Lindsay. They took a step of faith. They took a step of faith. They were part of the 10% that stepped out of a comfortable job that was, both of them were in, making enough money, etc. They took a step of faith to come and serve you, to serve your kids. I hope you guys rejoice in those that the Lord has put over in leadership with you. So this week, and in your prayers and in your thoughts, rejoice over the, the people that, that God has given you to lead the crossing. Amen? But again, that's just a part of it. I just hope that we as a crossing, when people hear like, hey, you go to the Church of the Crossing, oh, you're a people that love Jesus and love people. You're a thankful people. You're a hopeful people. You're a joyful people. You're a rejoicing people. I pray that that is the, the the characteristics that people hear out there, and for the most part, when I hear people talk about the crossing, they know that to be true. So let's continue to press into that, to the joy of the Lord. He is our strength, and what He has done for us. Amen. So we're gonna we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna take communion, and then we're gonna sing. And so let's pray, Father. Thank you for this message. Lord, the message doesn't change that the reason why the people rejoice in Nehemiah's day is because you were moving and working through them. But how much more should we rejoice and be glad and be thankful because we have the full counsel of God. They saw dimly. We see so much more clearly in who Jesus is, informed by your word and, and, and empowered by your Holy Spirit that leads, guides, and directs us. Every single one of us <clears throat> has the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that leads, guides, and directs us in to the praise. He began by regenerating our hearts, turning a dead man and a dead woman to life. We've crossed over from death to life. And now we have the ability to have perfect fellowship with you. Enter into your presence daily, hourly, by minute, by minute, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done. And because of that, we can just come to you with all of our hurts, all of our pains, all of our sorrows, yet always rejoicing and even those that aren't green pastures, that we know that every good gift comes from you. So may we be a people that rejoices and worships in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.